0: I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world battle by battle. and thanks for listening to Cauldron. I'm your host, Cullen, and today we have a wild little story about the siege of Cusco in 1537. To find out the sources I used and to get a sneak peek into next week's episode, stick around until the end. And also, if you want to see what we're doing on Instagram or Facebook, go and search at Cauldron or at Cauldron Podcast, and you'll be able to pull those up and get a look at the various images, videos, and little clips of the show that we post. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get stuck in with the Inca, the Spanish, and the siege of Cusco. By the 1530s, the conquest of the so-called New World and the Age of Discovery were both well underway. The wave upon wave of Spanish and Portuguese adventurers that had been crossing the Atlantic in search of wealth and fame had for decades brought the Christian God and death to the people of Central and South America. From the islands of the Caribbean to the cenotes of the Yucatan, Spanish steel and smallpox had destroyed the unprotected populations of entire cities and cultures. The complete lack of immunity to European diseases and the weakness or absence of armament made the native civilizations particularly vulnerable. Disease alone might have been responsible for millions of deaths, with some sources I've seen claiming 80 to 90 percent of the populations of both North and South America and their indigenous people having died as a result of first contact. Now, I don't know if that's exact. I've seen some sources that claimed it was somewhere closer to 40 percent and some that have said it was even only 15 percent. I would say it's probably somewhere in between the 40 and the 80. So I, I would probably guess somewhere around 60 to 65, which is still an incredible number. The men who made that first contact were a particularly vicious and ruthless breed of Iberians. In most cases, the conquistador, literally meaning conqueror, came from families of modest to meager means and saw the dangerous westward journey as the only means for betterment in the stagnant Spanish social structure. If they could find wealth and fame abroad, they could return to their homeland and live amongst the wealthy elite. Along the way, the conquistador could, as he undoubtedly sought, spread the word of the gospel and God, and so expand the kingdom of heaven as well as the kingdom of the Habsburgs. Using horses, war mastiffs, Steel, crossbows, arc native allies, and European methods of warfare, the conquistadors found themselves time and time again wildly outnumbered and yet somehow victorious. If the numbers are to be believed, at certain times the violently brutal Europeans, in some cases mistaken for gods by the natives, fought against 5,000 to 1 odds. Now, as with any successful military expedition, the conquests of the established, powerful, organized empires of Central and South America, like the Aztec and the Inca, needed incredible leadership. In Cortez, the Aztec would find a relentless demon of an enemy, and we will definitely tackle him in a later episode. In Francisco Pizarro, the Inca found themselves against an implacable incarnation of greed and sheer will. In 1532, maybe the most fateful ambush in South American history took place. At the pivotal Battle of Cajamarica, a very small, maybe just a few dozens of Spanish soldiers caught the Inca Emperor Atahualpa unaware as he was in the middle of sorting out a civil war. Armed conquistadors succeeded in capturing Atahualpa and killing thousands of indigenous tribespeople and routed tens of thousands more. Pizarro held the captured Inca emperor god Atahualpa and demanded ever increasing sums of gold and silver. The, quote, gold fever of the conquistadors cannot be overstated and was truly a dominant force driving these men ever deeper into the unknown. The natives were so perplexed by the seeming need for gold of the Europeans that for a time it was believed that the strange men from the sea actually ate gold. As we know, that was not the case. But Pizarro did need gold to enhance his own personal wealth and standing. He also needed it so that if he could prove the Andes were rich in precious metals, he would instantly become a heavy hitter in the Habsburg court. The prisoner king, Atahualpa swore he could pay his ransom in metal, supposedly promising a room of gold, or a room full of gold, and then two more rooms full of silver. To collect the payment, Pizarro sent three men, a notary from the Basque region and two trusty sailors. He sent these men on a 500-plus mile-long journey through the mountains of the Andes, and these three men were the first Europeans to set their eyes on the city in the mountains, the city of Cuzco. Inca capital, Cusco, was massive, beautiful, and impossible. The idea that a culture could build so much, so high, and in relatively so short a time without writing the wheel or significant draft animals seems truly unlikely. But the Inca did it, and the Spanish were blown away by what they saw. One of Pizarro's men reporting, quote, this city is the greatest and the finest ever seen in this country or anywhere in the Indies. We can assure you, Your Majesty, that it is so beautiful and has such fine buildings that it would be remarkable even in Spain. End quote. Pizarro knew he needed to take the city if he wanted to dismantle the whole Inca world, and so he set about asserting Spain's dominance over the region. Pizarro had Atahualpa executed on trumped-up charges and moved with his army of around 120 to 150, again, with uh, these ancient to medieval and Renaissance sources. Numbers, up until the Napoleonic Wars, numbers of troops and sizes of armies are really hard to come by. Uh, we'll hit it in a little while when we talk about the Inca army. They are either really, really tiny or they're really exaggerated, but it's safe to say I've seen a couple sources that said 120, 128. I've seen a couple that said 150. I saw one that said 190 for the Spanish forces. So I'm going to say it's 120 to 150. It was well under 200 men that the Spanish had when they first entered. So the Spanish move and they install a puppet emperor in the form of a man named Manco Inca. Manco at first... Tried to work with the Spaniards He was attempting to keep his newfound power And really he was trying to protect his people as well His family was of a lesser nobility So it's likely he saw this as an excellent opportunity for advancement Not just for himself, but for his family as well At one point he helped the Spanish actually put down a rebellion Of a a couple of tribes outside the city and he even brought the Pizarro brothers on a traditional Inca hunt. So it's clear that Manco was trying to make the best of a fairly shitty situation. It became clearer and clearer to Manco as he recognized early on that if the Spanish took Cuzco, the expansive Inca empire that relied on its central capital would crumble and get picked apart. So he was trying to kind of maintain a status quo with the Spanish. However, the harsh treatment of his people, which basically came in the form of the Spanish looting and and being pretty uh, horrible towards the citizens of Cusco and the surrounding villages as well as the harsh treatment of himself uh, apparently his homes were robbed on a few occasions and manco was regularly spat on by the conquistadors and his wife was also stolen so uh, that was a lot of a lot of crappy behavior was being thrown at him and his people and it kind of set manco on a course that he basically embraced and would become, uh, would become kind of a source of, of rebellion for his people. Uh, Manco made a decision that in time, unfortunately, would destroy the, the very Inca empire he was trying to actually save. Throwing off the yoke of his handlers, Manco cleverly escaped the city of Cusco in 1535. He fled into the countryside intent on building an army and also a rebellion. The Inca were a fairly militaristic society. They had been fighting initially to expand and secure their borders for their empire, but then they began to suppress unrest and revolution. There was even apparently a fair amount of frontier conflict as the Inca had built an extensive series of forts and defensive positions along the empire's borders. As a culture, the Inca prided themselves on being successful in war and they celebrated strong warriors. But their victories in warfare came not from any advanced technology or a highly developed system of tactics. But really, it came from a superior logistical capability and just sheer numerical weight. The Inca, quote, got there the fastest with the mostest, end quote, in the words of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Which basically means that they use brilliant, a, a, a truly brilliant system of roads and bridges through the mountains to muster massive armies and deliver them to the battlefield well-fed and equipped. Manco had begun building his command in the U.K. Valley, his men traveling from as far off as modern-day Chile and Ecuador. Moving through the mountains along the roads and stopping at the numerous forts to equip and supply, Manco's men were armed in the exact same way as their ancestors'. The primary weapons were the star-headed maces and spears that would be used to essentially club an enemy and break bones. Stone and metal were used, but nothing as hard or deadly as steel had been developed in South America or in the Americas at all. Simple and effective weapons like axes, spears, and clubs were found in the hands of most Inca warriors, but it was the Inca ranged weapons that had some variety Without the gunpowder or crossbows that the Spanish had, Inca bows and slings were archaic, if not downright prehistoric, but they proved deadly enough. Bows were the preferred weapon of the jungle tribes, but the slings firing smoothed stones dozens of yards with deadly speed and accuracy were very popular in Manco's army. As his army grew, Manco made his plans. He believed the best way to defeat the Spanish and rid the empire of the hated Europeans was to reconquer Cuzco. In the spring of 1536, the Inca army was ready and it attacked, using its massive numerical superiority to occupy a large portion of Cuzco. Manco's army may have numbered as many as 200,000, but again, I have seen a couple of different sources, and the number varies between 100 and 200,000 and 60 to 80,000, and as low I've seen as 40,000. So clearly we have to kind of uh, take these with a pinch of salt. It does seem pretty clear that the Inca had a history of being able to mass very, very large armies, and they were able to do that through their organization and their, their transit uh, their roads and system of transportation, but I would be surprised if 200,000 were the number. Again, the the massive numbers we sometimes see in Europe, I tend to side with the people that say they can't be correct, but it does seem like in the new world the conquest uh, uh, it seems like the massive numbers seem a little bit more possible so I'm I'm not likely to say 200,000 but I wouldn't be surprised if 80 to 100,000 were, were definitely possible either way his men had great initial success against the relatively small force of conquistadors who at this point again numbered between 120 and 190 we're not really sure But they also had a large contingent of allied natives, which would be a constant throughout the conquest of the New World by Portuguese and Spanish and eventually French, British and Dutch armies. They definitely played tribes off of each other and a lot like what you see uh, Julius Caesar do in Gaul, where... He would find a small weak tribe and ally with it and use them to take on the larger... Uh, the larger, powerful tribes, and eventually those would—they would gain uh, kind of a predominant position amongst the allied tribes. And we saw that—or we see that here in, in the Pizarro's conquest of the Inca, where they were definitely using uh, tribal rivalries and uh, longstanding animosities between tribes to actually—to uh, to their benefit and to bolster their numbers. Manco Inca's warriors were able to seize the area around Korakora, which it was the palace of Sinchi Roca, who was an early Inca king. And basically it gave them a very strong position in the city and it helped them rain down sling stones and arrows against the conquistadors. The conquistadors were backed into two large palace structures where they were mounting a very strong defense. One of the chroniclers at the time said, quote, Inca's forces shot their aiming arrows and set the whole city on fire. Fleeing from the flames, the surviving Spaniards retreated into a building called Cayus Mango that served as their church. The Incas shot their flaming arrows at the roof of the building, which was covered with straw. So you see here, Manco was using uh, flaming arrows to try and not just smoke out and burn out the enemy, but also destroy the potential defensive structures that they were in. So Manco's men were winning, or at least throwing their weight around, basically by swamping the Spanish with humans, uh, hurting the Spanish, and pushing them into ever-shrinking parts of the city. Manco believed that there was pretty much one surefire way to guarantee success— and, uh, and essentially guarantee the defeat of the Europeans. He needed to hold the man-made mountain of Cusco, the massive fortress of saxe The Inca army proved too much for the small Spaniard force, and it was allowed to basically freely roam through the city, and was even able to keep the critical fort of Sacsayhuaman. Located in the northern section of the Inca capital, Sacsayhuaman had been built up and added to over the centuries of its existence by many cultures, starting with the Kilki people. Massive stones were cut by the Inca craftsmen and pieced together without mortar to create an imposing and gigantic fortress. According to the first Spaniard to have seen the fortress in 1534, his name was Pedro Sancho de la Jose, neither the bridge of Segovia nor any of the buildings that the Romans or Hercules built are so worthy of being seen as this, end quote. 3,000-foot-long, staggered walls of gray, gargantuan-sized stones, some weighing between 200,000 pounds and 400,000 pounds, the largest of which weighed somewhere around 360 tons, or what equates to 700,000-plus pounds, and rose more than 28 feet in height. Pedro Pizarro... Francisco Pizarro's brother said of the walls, quote, And in the tower part of this wall there were stones so large and thick that it seemed impossible that human hands could have set them in place. They were so close together and so well fitted that the point of a pin could not have been inserted in one of the joints. The whole fortress was built up in terraces and flat spaces, end quote. The Incas had filled in the dirt in between each section of wall so that there was a flat terrace, if you think about it in terms of like a, a wedding cake. So there was the lower wall, and then there was a flat surface, and then there was the next section of wall and then a flat surface. And this essentially went all the way up to the top of this kind of man-made mountain. The native defenders could then basically stand on both or on each, you know, each leveled terrace. And they'd have a 20-foot wall or up to 30 feet in height advantage over uh, over the uh, people attacking the fort. And from there, they could direct just a withering volley of stones and arrows down on the exposed assailants below. If the attackers somehow seized one of the sections of the wall, the defenders could just retreat up to the next level and then to the next and then to the next and so on. Essentially just recreating their height advantage each time it appeared as though they might lose a section of the wall. And think about it in terms of just the pure exhaustion that the attackers would go through. They have to fight their way to the first wall. Then they have to fight climbing up 20 to 30 feet under fire, under attack. Then they get to the next one. They have to clear that terrace of defenders while being shot at by the defenders on the next section. And then they have to start the whole climb and attack again. It would be, especially for if you have uh, if you have conquistadors who are carrying heavy armor and arms, they are probably not as... Well, I don't know about fit, but they're definitely under more uh under more gear and so are carrying around a lot more weight than your native fighters so that would just be an exhausting excruciating series of tasks trying to take each terrace of this mountain. A number of towers were also at the top on the very top terrace, so each tower would have been another defensive position that you would have had to have captured. And it also would have given the defenders another layer of height with which to fire down on their enemy. And these also allowed for the defenders a uh, to to restock in arms and food. Basically, they were kind of utility towers. They had food, tools, and Pedro Pizarro again states quote They were filled with arms, lances, arrows, darts, clubs, bucklers, and large oblong shields." End quote. So the towers on top of the fortress were chock full of everything you'd need to outlast your attackers and hold the fortress for as long as possible. After saxe fell to the Inca, b- both sides fell into the kind of consistent, constant ebb and flow of, of a protracted siege. quick break here just to remind you guys that if you like what you're listening to subscribe and throw the podcast a rating and review on itunes it helps get us up on the list and it helps us get heard by more people which is always cool if you love what you're hearing swing over to the patreon page and donate to the cause any amount helps with research material and recording equipment, and there are some cool tiers that give you access to the Great Commander series, where I cover one of history's most brilliant military minds, and you also get episodes early. Other rewards include picking a weapon or battle for us to cover, and there's also a book club that's taking shape with our Instagram, and I'm thinking about doing something with the Patreon for that. So. A dollar a month makes you a skirmisher, which earns you my undying gratitude. And also, very usefully, a shout-out in the next episode. To find us on Patreon, just click in the link in the show notes. Alright, that's enough of that. Let's get back to Cuzco. Siege does not necessarily mean boring. The fighting was desperate and truly ferocious, as both sides understood the stakes involved. For the Spanish, survival. For the Inca, it was freedom. As the siege dragged on, the Inca tried to terrorize the trapped Spaniards by cutting off and displaying the disembodied limbs of any man unfortunate enough to fall into their hands. The Spaniards, for their part, went after the Inca women. An Inca warrior's wife was an essential part of the Inca war machine, playing anywhere from baggage train to mess cook to medic. Correctly recognizing that the women were the backbone of the besieging army, one of Pizarro's brothers ordered his men to, quote, not leave any woman alive, end quote. This horrific style of war was ruthless but effective, as the same source would go on to say, quote, the fear generated in those who remained free would keep them from serving their husbands. This was done from thence on, and so good was the stratagem that it sowed much dread, as much in the Indians of losing their women as the woman who feared to die, end quote. Beyond the psychological terror tactics, Both sides were particularly horrific, trying to maim, mutilate, and disgrace the remains of each other at all costs. Again, it's easy to believe that the men on both sides were under no delusion about the importance of this victory. Alonso Enrique de Guzman wrote in 1543, recalling the Inca rebellion, In comparison to the centuries-old gruesome Reconquista, he said of the Inca war, quote, I can bear witness that this, this is the most dreadful and cruel war in the world for between Christians and Moors, there is some well feeling and it is in the interests of both sides to spare those they take alive because of their ransoms. But in this Indian war, there is no such feeling on either side. They give each other the cruelest deaths they can imagine, end quote. As the siege went on and the months rolled by, saxe became more and more clearly the key to victory. If the Inca could just hold out and wait for the Spanish numbers to start to dwindle, they would win. If the Spanish could use their far superior technology from on top the advantageous location of the fort, they could probably never be moved. With the fort clearly the site of the decisive action fighting around it was constant and very hot. Quote, From a terrace that is on one side of the courtyard, they showered us with so many stones and arrows that we could not protect ourselves. And for this reason, Juan Pizarro shoved some of the infantrymen towards the terrace, which was low, and so that some Spaniards might get up on it and drive the Indians from there. And while he was fighting with these Indians in order to drive them away... Juan neglected to cover his head with his shield, and with the many stones that they were throwing, one of them hit him on the head and cracked his skull. Bleeding from what was obviously a serious head injury, Juan nevertheless continued fighting until the Spaniards and their native allies had gained a foothold on the top of Saxohuman's ter- first terrace wall. With darkness descending, however, and still pummeled from the two sets of walls above them with a constant avalanche of stones, the Spaniards nevertheless were gradually forced once again to retreat back down and across the plain, some remounting their horses while others stumbled backward, holding their shields up for protection." Manko's warriors, meanwhile, advanced after them, shouting insults and lifting their tunics to bare their legs, while others continued to relentlessly whirl and launch a seemingly inexhaustible supply of stones. That's an excerpt from one of the books I used as a source, and I'll, uh, I'll put that in the show notes. It just gives you an idea of the ferocity of the native defense. These guys were absolutely relentless in keeping the spanish as far from the the walls of saxahuamon as they could be cut off from support and supplies defending against a siege and undertaking a siege at the same time the spanish were in a really really tight spot here in an attempt to get help the spanish uh leader Uh, the the Pizarro brothers, they sent men to New Spain. And most of these riders were killed, but some of them seem to have been captured and maybe used by Manco to put these men to the task of training his soldiers in how to use European weapons and tactics. So if they were able to capture any of these weapons from, uh, say, Spaniard bodies or whatever, they might be able to turn them around and use them against the Spanish. It's even reported that Manco himself at some point teaches or was taught to ride a horse and maybe uh, fought with a sword and Spanish breastplate in a European fashion. So Manco Inca was ready for the final push and the inevitable showdown with the hated Spanish. Even facing a massive numerical superiority and the strongest Inca fort, somehow the Spanish were able to isolate Saxahuaman, keeping the Inca army from being able to resupply the fortress. The shrewd alliances with many of the weaker and more disgruntled tribes in the area that the Spanish had built up helped to keep the Spanish defense uh, defensive army or force bolstered. This was the again the favorite method of both Cortes and Pizarro for evening the odds, and would again prove to be the blueprint for most colonial powers in the in the future. The addition of a relatively large group of westerners, maybe as many as five hundred, in the form of El Magro and his men, who were allied with Pizarro, and they also brought along a allied native force made for a much larger army than the 128 men that Pizarro had come into Cusco with. So the Spanish army gets quite a big shot of uh, adrenaline here and quite a good number of uh, fresh troops are tossed into the ring. And the idea is they've got to take the fort and no matter what, the Pizarros and Amagro decide that they've gotta take the fort and push the 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 Manco force out of Cusco. Numbers aside, somehow the Spaniards are able to subdue and overrun the defenders of Sacsahuaman. finally claiming the fort for themselves. And they probably just use their overpowering uh, uh, technology. So their their firearms and crossbows and the Spanish steel just eventually told the tale of the battle. With the uh, vital key to the city in hand, the Spanish decided to move swiftly and launch an attack on Manco's base in Ollantayambo. Whether this was meant to achieve an overall victory or to goad the Inca into unnecessary action, it's unclear, but the end result is. The Spanish were quickly beaten back by the numbers, so they they force the they force Manco's army out of the city they keep attacking and they keep attacking and eventually Manco's force gets to a point where they regroup and they are again under attack from attack from the Spanish but this time the Spanish start to give way and Manco's men pursue in the jubilation of what they perceived to be a victory and the rescue of their culture and freedom, the Inca warriors overpursued and walked blindly into a Spanish ambush. The massive army of Manco that had for so long held Cusco and were able to keep the Spanish in a super tight spot for almost a year was eviscerated by the Spanish and their new allies. The over-pursuit had put them in a terrible position, and with their new allies and fresh reinforcements, Almagro, Pizarro, and the the Spanish, Spanish conquistadors were able to soundly beat the Inca army, and it simply dissolved. Cajamarca was the Inca Trafalgar. Cuzco was the Inca Waterloo. Cusco was one of the truly decisive battles in history. Manco Inca was forced to retreat to Alianta Atambo and then into the jungle at Vilcambaba. After Cuzco was safely recaptured, looted, and settled by the gold-hungry Spaniards, a new capital city was founded by Pizarro at Lima. Cusco quickly became nothing more than a colonial backwater with an interesting but rapidly fading story. With the gold and silver gone and tapped out, the Inca city held little of value for European markets. Pizarro would eventually overstep his power and be stabbed by the son of his one-time ally and savior, Almagro. Supposedly, Pizarro fell to the ground after he had been stabbed in the stomach and began screaming for Jesus and used his own blood to paint a crucifix on the floor next to him as he bled out. Manco Inca went on to lead some smaller rebellions and keep the fight alive for a few more years, but he never again was able to challenge Spain in any real way. In an attempt to gain an edge for his men, Manco gave sanctuary to a handful of Spanish deserters on the condition that they continued to train his soldiers in the European ways of war. These men agreed, but then, hoping for Spanish leniency of their desertion, the men turned on Manco and assassinated him. The clumsy killers were never able to be pardoned because they were soon caught and executed by Manco's men, but the damage was done, the cause was now leaderless, and the resistance had ended. With the fall of the Inca, Spanish control over Peru and most of Western South America was assured. Sacsayhuaman, however, is still around. At least some of it. The majority of the boulders were ripped down and split up for construction material for Cuzco's new colonial government buildings and for the wealthy Spanish homes of merchants and the elite. But the sheer size of some of the rocks used by the original builders were beyond the Spanish ability to actually move. So instead, they stayed where they were. Whether by design or by chance, the walls all seem to slightly tilt inwards. So every earthquake causes the walls to shift and expand outwards and then settle back in and essentially they get tighter packed with each earthquake, giving them an even more and more stronger position. So it appears that Saxehuaman is here to stay, outliving the Inca, outlasting the Habsburgs, and outsmarting Mother Nature itself. All right, that was the Siege of Cusco, and a wild little tale from the Andes it was. It was actually a very interesting story i didn 't know much about the Inca. I really don 't know nearly enough about the conquistadors and their ex- exploration and conquest of the new world so every time I get to dip a toe into that story, it is uh, I, I really enjoy it I think it's a very it's just it 's crazy to me that you have um, these kind of fully functioning fully evolved civilizations that are completely unknown to, uh, Western Europe for as long as they were. Um, and then you have these incredibly small groups of, of Westerners come in and, uh, and basically rip apart these established societies. So yeah, I think this is very interesting stuff. I can't wait to, uh, tackle, Cortez, and we'll eventually get back to the Inca when we do cover the Battle of Cajamarca. Um, That, again, will probably be a little bit of a, a short one like this one. So anyhow, I find that stuff interesting. It was a fun episode. But as always, if I got anything wrong or you wanted me to check something, go ahead and shoot me a message on the website or shoot me a message on social media, and I will address that in the next episode. Uh, Check out the website in the show notes for the sources I used for this episode. There weren't a whole heck of a lot. I had to use a lot of um, kind of uh, references and and not, not as many books as I typically like to. But there were a few really good ones. And chief among them was the excellent book translated by Rolena Adoro and Ivan Bosrup and it's called unlocking the doors to the worlds of the Gauman Poma and his Nuve cronica um it's online it was a uh, academia source it's very very interesting it's definitely too uh too academic for me it's way too high and uh, not high and mighty but it's very dense but there was some really cool stuff and they they dig into what I couldn't really get into uh, which is the miracles of the Siege of Cusco, because um, there were a lot of, of little stories about supposed saints that saved certain conquistadors or protected them. Um, I kind of st- steered clear of that stuff just because I, I didn't find it... I, I thought it was interesting, but not uh, not historically... Uh, Important to the story of the siege But if you want to check that out It's in there and it's free online At academia.com Go to Instagram and Facebook For some great images And to vote on what battles we cover In the future And please don't forget, rate and review on iTunes Check us out on Patreon And also on Instagram, we're starting a book club And if you want to help pick What books we cover And check into that Just go over to Instagram, search Cauldron Podcast. All right, next week we are covering one of my favorite battles from World War II. We are covering the American landings on Iwo Jima, and we are going to get stuck in with the Pacific War. So have a good week, and we'll talk to you next time.